too. Adaying heard that he and his subjects entertain great love for them and for Spain. They are, moreover, informed that he and his subjects very much wish to hear news from Spain, and send therefore their admiral, Christopher Columbus, who will tell them that they are in good health and perfect prosperity. Priester John, who was still considered to be ruling in some mystical fashion over an imaginary country, might have welcomed this species of circular communication. It was certainly wasted on the inhabitants of Hispaniola, who were considerably more concerned with their own health and prosperity than with that of Ferdinand and Isabella, and who certainly had more reason when the adventurers had once landed, so to a certain extent armed and prepared against any chance that he might encounter. Columbus set sail from Spain on August 3rd. 1492. Much has been said concerning the character of the crews with which he had been provided. It is true the American natives were destined in the first instance, by some peculiarly hard stroke of fortune, to make their acquaintance with Europeans largely through the intermediary of criminals. It is often held to have been one of the greatest hardships of Columbus that his ships should have been manned so largely by desperados and malefactors pardoned especially in order to take part in the expedition. In the peculiar circumstances of his first and exceptionally daring adventure the nature of his crew became of great and even of vital importance. It is certain, however, that Columbus himself obviously suffered no permanent discouragement on account of the men of his first crew, for he subsequently advocated the transportation of criminals to the Indies, and, further, urged that any person having committed a crime with the exception of those of heresy, Les Majeste, and treason should have the option of ordinary imprisonment, or of going out at his own expense to Hispaniola to serve under the orders of the admiral. These edicts were actually brought into force, and although Columbus some years afterwards bitterly complained of the type of European whom he found at Hispaniola, there is no doubt that he himself was largely responsible for their presence. Nevertheless, speaking generally, Columbus was not alone in being served by the species of retainer, for the custom borrowed from the Portuguese, was a general one, and where volunteers failed, their places were supplied by the dregs of the prisons. One of the principal charges brought against Columbus was that, in addition to his alleged maltreatment of his own men, he had refrained from baptizing Indians, and this because he had desired slaves rather than Christians. He was accused, moreover, of having made many slaves in order to send them to Castile. Of course, there is no doubt whatever as to the truth of this latter charge, but Columbus was not alone in this respect indeed. At that time there was no single adventurer who had penetrated to these new regions without making slaves whenever the opportunity arose, and it may be said in common fairness to the individual explorers that no other method was understood, and that this procedure was considered entirely legitimate. It is unnecessary to enter here into the troubles and tribulations of Columbus's first voyage. The details of the men's discontent and of the leader's courage, persistence, and strategy have been the subject of thousands of works. The great contrition, moreover, of his mutinous crew, when after five weeks sailing they sighted land, and their sudden admiration and almost worship of the great navigator, afford too familiar a subject to be dealt with here. Suffice to say that Columbus took possession of this first land the island which he believed to form part of a continent in the name of the crown of Castile and Leon christening this herald of a new world San Salvador. For a while the shock of this triumph appears to have deadened all other considerations, but only for a while. Columbus, like every other navigator of the period, had gone out in search of glory, and of gilded glory for preference. The very first thought, therefore, which took possession of the minds of both the admiral and his men, 
when the first exultation had died away in favor of more practical affairs, was that of gold. To this end they cruised about the new seas, visiting Cuba, Haiti or Hispaniola, and other islands. After a while Columbus discovered some traces of the coveted metal, but these to his heated imagination were mere chance fragments of the golden mountains and valleys which lay somewhere beyond. It was time, he determined, to seek for further assistance, leaving a small company of the Spaniards in the island of Haiti, the inhabitants of which had proved themselves friendly disposed. He sailed for Europe, taking with him such specimens of the New World as he thought would chiefly appeal to the Spanish court. Among this merchandise were samples of the products of the Western Islands, small nuggets of gold, and human merchandise in the way of captive Indians. When his heavily laden ships arrived in Spain the entire nation broke out into thunders of acclamation. Queen Isabella received him with even more than her accustomed amount of graciousness, while the coldness which had characterized Ferdinand's attitude towards him had now become altered to fervent enthusiasm. The court of Spain, convinced of the value of these new possessions, lost no time in applying to Pope Alexander VI, for his sanction of their dominion over the New World, this the Pope granted, drawing the famous line from pole to pole, which was to serve as a dividing line between the colonies of Spain and Portugal. Columbus, in the meanwhile, was preparing for his second voyage, naturally enough, this was conducted under very different auspices from the first, it was now a proud fleet which, favored by the trade winds, plowed its way to the southwest manned by a numerous, influential, and in many cases aristocratic, company. The advent of the second fleet to Haiti brought about the first of the innumerable collisions between the Europeans and the natives of America. Of the garrison which Columbus had left in the island none remained, there was scarcely a trace. Moreover, of the existence of the rough fort which had been constructed, the manner of the natives had altered, they received the newcomers with marked evidences of fear and distrust. After a while the truth came out. Some members of the European garrison had taken upon themselves to maltreat the natives, and these, resenting this, had turned upon their aggressors and slaughtered them to a man, after which they had burned the fort to the ground, in order to inculcate the necessary terror into the unfortunate inhabitants a fearful revenge was wreaked on them by Columbus's men, and the unhappy people of Haiti paid for their act in floods of blood and tears. This continued until the Indians became for the time being thoroughly cowed. Subsequently they were set to a work to dig for gold and other metals in order to enrich the pioneers. As time went on the natives were ground down more and more, and set to tasks for which they were temperamentally quite unsuited. Death became rife among their ranks, and the hardships endured drove them to open rebellion. The armor and weapons of the Spaniards rendered any attempts of the kind abortive, and massacres and torturing completed the enslaving process of the wretched race. Communication between the new and old world was at that time, of course, slow and precarious in the extreme. Nevertheless, tidings of what was going on in the island of Hispaniola at length found their way to the ears of Ferdinand and Isabella. To these were added a number of reports, for the most part fabricated by Columbus's enemies, of the tyranny of the admiral and of his ill treatment of Spaniards of good birth. Columbus, leaving his brother Bartholomew in charge of the new dominions, returned to Spain confronted his enemies, and was able to refute the accusations brought against him. As regards the allegations of ill-treatment of the Spaniards this was easily enough disproved, as regards the Indians the matter was not so simple, for, to do them justice, Ferdinand and Isabella were keenly anxious to prevent any tyranny or ill-treatment of their new and remote subjects. Columbus, having regained the confidence of his sovereigns, 
started on his third voyage in the beginning of 1496. On this occasion he discovered Trinidad, coasted along the borders of Guiana, and saw for the first time the islands of Cubagua and Margarita. In Haiti the admiral found a discontented community. His two brothers, Bartholomew and Diego, had become unpopular with the Spaniards, who were chafing beneath their authority. The arrival of Columbus caused a temporary lull in the disputes, but after a while the power of the malcontents grew steadily, and their accounts of what was to the fore in Haiti, although willfully garbled and exaggerated, began to bear weight with the royal family of Spain. Columbus, in the first instance, had stipulated for the sole command of the fleets of the New World. This was well enough in theory, but in practice the concession was almost immediately broken into. Other expeditions started out from Spain to the New World. Alonso Logia, who had accompanied Columbus on his second voyage, now came out in command of an expedition of his own. In his company was Amerigo Vespixi, whose graphic and fanciful account of his own particular doings resulted eventually in the naming of the entire continent after him. In 1499 Alonso Nino led an expedition out from Spain, followed shortly after by another commanded by Pinzon. In the meantime Brazil was being explored by the great Portuguese, Pedro Alvarez Cabral, to a return to Columbus. The glory of the great navigator had now waned, as the years intervened between the date of his great feat and his last glorious present. His record became stale and forgotten, while the power and influence of his enemies grew. In the year 1500 Columbus was sent to Spain in chains this time. On his arrival Ferdinand and Isabella, shocked at the state of affairs, endeavored to make some minor reparation to the greatest man of his age. They were nevertheless firm in refusing to allow him to continue as governor of Hispaniola and the new territories, and to this post was appointed Nicolas de Ovando. This latter took out the first really imposing expedition which had set sail for Hispaniola. The welfare of the Indians had been strictly committed to his charge by Ferdinand and Isabella. Numerous humane laws had been drawn up for the protection of the natives, and these, it was intended, should be rigidly enforced. Nevertheless, the thousands of miles of intervening ocean rapidly deprived these of any semblance of authority, and the misery and mortality of the men of Hispaniola continued unabated, although to a certain extent deserted and discredited. Columbus determined to make one more desperate effort to draw himself clear of the oblivion which was now enveloping him. With a fleet of four small vessels he set sail from Cadiz on May 9, 1502. Perhaps on this occasion his mortification was greater than ever before. Obando, the governor, would have nothing to do with him, having suffered shipwreck and numerous other calamities besides. The great navigator, embittered and downcast, turned the bows of his ships towards Spain. On landing he learned of the death of Queen Isabella, the only person of influence who had shown him a consistent friendship. Realizing now that his influence and chances had finally departed, he retired into seclusion in the neighborhood of Valladolid, where he died in his 60th year on May 20, 1506. Chapter III The Spanish Conquistadors The Pioneer Conquistadors of South America afford an interesting study. Such men as those who took their lives in their hands and sailed out into the unknown were actuated by two motives the love of adventure and the desire of gain. There is no doubt that the second consideration by far outweighed the first. A man of the period left Spain or Portugal for the New World for one cogent reason only, to seek his fortune. If he won fame in the achievement of this, so much the better. Indeed, as a matter of fact, it was generally impossible to achieve the one without the other. Although his fame might frequently have its shield sullied and blackened by a number of wild and terrible acts, 
for circumstances tended to make the conquistador what he almost invariably became, a daring being who let the lives of no others stand in the way of his own interests. He was not, as was the case with corresponding officials of a later epoch, sent out on an accurately defined mission for which his emoluments were definitely fixed and guaranteed by the home government. The conquistador nearly always risked much of his own before he set sail from his native land. A man was seldom given a governorship, even of an unknown region in the New World, unless he showed himself prepared to finance in part an expedition which should be of sufficient importance to furnish the new territory with men and livestock, and everything else of the kind. The conquistador, in fact, was generally the active partner in an enterprise which was largely commercial. Sometimes his sleeping partners were the merchants of Spain, sometimes it was the king himself who joined in the venture, at others it was both king and merchants who jointly assisted the pioneer. But it was very seldom that an adventurer of the kind succeeded in obtaining an important concession unless he were prepared to subsidize it heavily from his own pocket. We may instance Pedro de Mendoza. It was the part he had played in the sack of Rome which enabled this wealthy adventurer to organize the great expedition which set sail for the provinces of the River Plate. Here we have the curious anomaly of the church being robbed by a mercenary, and the money obtained by the loot employed in an object which was ostensibly in the interests of the church in the New World, in order to satisfy the public nearer home. It is true that the conquistadors were almost invariably accompanied by priests, but once well without the jurisdiction of Rome. Spain, and Portugal. They took very good care that the priests should not interfere in their concerns. Having been accepted as a guarantee of good faith, their sphere of utility had ended with the arrival in the New World so far as the conquistadors were concerned. Many of them became active participants in the wild deeds of the conquistadors. Did they, on the other hand, show themselves desirous of protesting? The more reckless pioneers made strenuous attempts to muzzle their eloquence. When the spirit of the age and the circumstances in which these adventurers sailed to the southwest are considered, many of the atrocities committed are less to be wondered at than would otherwise be the case. It may be taken for granted, in the first place, that the temperament of these men was sufficiently wild and reckless to cause them to embark in any extraordinarily perilous enterprise of the kind, with all they had in the world sunk in the venture, they would move heaven and earth, and squander countless human beings, before admitting defeat. The failure of Indian labor meant financial ruin, this was frequently staved off at the cost of thousands and tens of thousands of lives. Such characteristics as these were by no means confined to the Spaniards and Portuguese. We have some terribly vivid examples of it on the part of the Welsers, the German merchant princes who contracted with Charles V to subdue and settle Venezuela. Sir Clements Markham relates that the first governor of the new colony, an official of the name of Alfinger, came out with a strong force in 1530. On his marshes he would employ many hundreds of native porters, these men were chained together in long lines, each slave having a ring round his neck made fast to the chain. When one of the slaves was too ill or too exhausted to proceed any farther, Alfinger had the unfortunate wretch's head severed from his body, so that the body dropped away from the chain without the march being hindered. It is difficult to imagine a more callous or atrocious proceeding than this, but undoubtedly financial considerations lay at the bottom of it. The thing was done, perhaps, poor encourager L's otters, and certainly many a poor staggering wretch marched on mile after mile, when under ordinary circumstances he would have dropped exhausted at an earlier stage. Thus the last atom of physical energy was wrenched by terror from the slaves a species of economy which, if worked out wholesale, 
may have proved sufficiently profitable from their owner's point of view. Long even after the passing of the pioneer conquistadors the methods of the Spanish court encouraged abuses of authority and many acts of tyranny. Officials, such as governors and even viceroys, were wont to pay certain sums down for the transference of the tenure of office, and it was then their task to wring as much from the governed territory as possible in order that they might retire from the new world to the old the owners of vast fortunes. To expect fair government under conditions such as these was to conceive human beings on a higher plane than that on which they are wont to be planned. Indeed, notwithstanding the atrocities and financial iniquities which were rife throughout Spanish and Portuguese colonies, to imagine the various officials as necessarily inhuman and criminal island of course, absurd, many of these were men of talent, and of merciful and gentle disposition but in many even of these cases the altogether extraordinary influence and atmosphere of the southern continent ended by driving them to acts from which in Europe they would have shrunk wholeheartedly. The dispositions of the men were not invariably at fault, but the system under which they worked was never anything else. It is time, however, to forsake generalization, and to return to the Spanish pioneers who first colonized Haiti, and then set foot on the mainland itself. In the ill-fated island the drama, begun with the advent of the Spaniards, was being continued in deeper and bloodier shades. The royal edicts came pompously out from Spain, commanding that the welfare of the Indians should be the first consideration on the part of the colonial government, but the thunder of such edicts, worn out by the voyage, died away ere they reached the island. Obando, it is true, made some endeavors to act up to the spirit of these enactments, but in view of the condition of the labor market and the clamorings of the settlers it was, humanly speaking, impossible to carry this out. As time went on both settlers and governors accustomed themselves to treat the aborigines rather as beasts of burden than as men, and they were hunted, slain, or driven to a labor with as little compunction as if they had been pack mules. The slightest sign of revolt was wont to be punished by an outlet of blood which left the unfortunate folk cowering in deeper terror and despair than before. The utter misery of the Indians may be imagined when the measures they took to free themselves are taken into consideration for in the end they adopted the plan of committing suicide as the only means of cheating the rapacity of their white oppressors, native families, and even entire villages, found gloomy consolation in a self-sought death. Even in this they were not invariably successful. Perhaps never has the irony of fate been more strongly illustrated than in the tale that is told of one large slave owner and his human chattels. These latter, having come to the end of their endurance, had determined to follow the example of so many in the neighborhood and to do away with themselves in a body. The Spaniard, however, received notice of the intention of these people in time, hastening to the spot. He came upon them just as they were preparing to effect their end. He was undoubtedly a crafty being. This, proceeding into the midst of the distraught folk, he called for a rope. This, he explained, was in order that he, too, might hang himself and thus accompany the Indians to the next world, where they would thus still remain his slaves. The ruse proved entirely successful. The credulous Indians became, as it were, horrified back to life at the idea, they abandoned the attempt upon their lives, and continued in sorrowful despair to serve their Spanish owner. In 1509 Ovando sailed back to Spain, and some return was made to Columbus's family for the part he had played in the discovery of the new colonies. His son, Diego, came out, having been endowed with the titles of Viceroy and Admiral. Thus the court of Spain had at last conceded some of the privileges which had been so effectually won by his father. 
it is certain enough that the experiences of Diego's generation were very different from those of his father's. The new commander took up his residence in state in Haiti, where he lived with great pomp and style. The Indians, however, it is said, suffered more under his governorship than had been their lot under that of his predecessor. The tide of conquest was flowing past the islands, and beginning to spend itself on the continent. In 1508 began the actual colonization of the Spanish Main. The first territories to which the Spaniards made their way were those which gave on the Gulf of Darien. Here a companion of Columbus in his second voyage, Alonso del Gia, was given the district extending from the Cape de la Vila to the Gulf of Uraba, and this territory was termed the land of New Andalusia. Another adventurer, Nicuza, came as his neighbor, holding the governorship of the coast from the Gulf of Uraba to the Cape Gracias Adios. These two conquistadors, although as jealous of each other as was usual with almost all these pioneer explorers, joined forces against the Indians, whom they attempted to subdue by means of an iron hand rather than by a silk glove. The Indians, however, proved themselves of a very warlike disposition, and the joint forces of the Spaniards were enabled to crush the power of the Aborigines. After a while the leaders were obliged to withdraw their forces from the district they had occupied. Some while afterwards Nunez de Balboa took charge of Uraba. On his arrival he found that matters on the Gulf of Darien had reached a desperate pitch. As the fortunes of the Spaniards had waned, the confidence of the Indians had increased. There is no doubt that the majority of men would have recoiled from the task which faced Balboa when he found himself at the head of a number of starving Spaniards, scarcely able to maintain their precarious foothold in a hostile country. Balboa gathered together the despairing remnants and contrived to put fresh heart into his men. He then turned to the Indians, and won their esteem by his considerate treatment. He proved himself, in fact, in every respect an able and successful leader. It was in 1512 that he set out on his famous expedition across the Isthmus, and won his way to the shores of the Pacific Ocean. It was certainly not the least dramatic moment in the history of early America when Balboa, in a frenzy of joy, seized the flag of Castile, and, holding it aloft, plunged his body into the waters of the ocean, claiming it for his king, as was the fate of so many able men of that period. It was not long before Balboa was superseded. The fine governmental structure he had built up was very soon wrecked by his successor and superior, Pedrarias. Friendly communication with the Indians was ruthlessly broken off. The natives were chased unmercifully by bloodhounds, and numbers slain. Balboa, Chafing beneath a situation which must have been keenly distressing to him, was suspected by Pedrarias, and arrested. The bishop, Cuvado, however, intervened in favor of the single-minded ex-governor, a reconciliation of a kind was patched up, and, in order to strengthen this, Balboa was officially betrothed to the daughter of Pedrarias a purely political move since Balboa was already united to the dusky daughter of Cardin, an aboriginal chief. There is matter for the novelist here and to spare, few situations can be found which hold more possibilities. In this case they led to the death of Balboa, which would probably have happened irrespective of the strange situation in which he found himself. The cause, however, was merely renewed jealousy on the part of the governor. Balboa had prepared a further expedition of discovery, so thoroughly, indeed, that the suspicions of Pedrarias were again needlessly aroused. A mock trial brought about a real catastrophe, which ended in the beheading of Balboa in 1547, at the age of 42. In the meanwhile much had been happening in the neighborhood. Charles B. found himself in some danger of running short of men in the face of these tremendous additions to his empire. 
he farmed out a portion of these new colonies, contracting with the Welsers, merchant princes of Augsburg, in Germany, to take charge of and to extend the settlements in that part of the continent which is now known as Venezuela. An official of the name of Alfinger was appointed as the first governor of this new settlement. He is said to have practiced the most barbarous cruelties on the unfortunate Indians, some of which have already been referred to. Alfinger was succeeded by other officials of his nationality, who are said to have proved themselves somewhat less cruel rulers. But, on the whole, this colonizing scheme of the Welsers proved a dreary failure, they had little interest in the permanent occupation of the country, and sought merely for the gold and precious metals. Thus, with the knowledge that their occupation would be short-lived, they forced the Indians to ever more strenuous labors than those to which they were accustomed even at the hands of the Spaniards. In the end the country became depopulated. The Welsers shrugged their shoulders, and admitted that their utility was at an end in that district. With this the Spaniards took possession of the country once again. Gonzalo Jimenez de Quesada now became prominent as a conquistador in the territory to the north of Peru, known then as New Granada. Quesada himself, although he lacked nothing of the courage and determination frequently of the merciless order of the average conquistador, was undoubtedly endowed with certain attributes which were possessed by very few of these hardy pioneers. For one thing he was scholarly, he had been given an elaborate education, and knew well how to put it to the best purposes. Quisada led an expedition up the Magdalena River. He had for companion Dinalcazar. They approached the country from the south, occupied Popagan and Pasto, and founded Guayaquil. They also penetrated the valley of Curacua and Bogota, and thus traversed the whole province. This brought them into contact with the Chibcha Indians. In the end these unfortunate beings were completely subdued, their civilization destroyed, and they themselves divided as slaves among the Spaniards. Quisada, accompanied by a band of mercenary Indians, started on his journey in order to seek for gold. He was, in the first place, received in a friendly way by the natives, but in the end these, dreading the greed which the invaders took no trouble to conceal, attacked them. The warfare between the Spaniards and the natives commenced, with the conquest of the natives as the result, as given above. It has already been explained that many of the characteristics of the Incas and of the Chibchas were curiously alike. In history this extended even to the fate of the respective royal families. Pizarro Sluidahualpa, Quisada was even more thorough, for not only did he destroy the prince of the Chibchas, but the whole of the royal family as well. These acts do not appear to have lain very heavily on the conscience of Quisada. If fruitful years be any test, the tough old conquistador lived to the age of 80, expiring in the year 1579. In 1597 it is said that his body was taken to Bogota Cathedral. Chapter I.D. The discovery and early history of Brazil It still remains a point of dispute between the Spanish and Portuguese nations as to who was the discoverer of Brazil, their island moreover, Amerigo Vespucci. Amerigo Vespucci may be said to have been more successful in his accounts of his voyages than in the feats which he actually accomplished. To have succeeded on such slender foundation in causing an entire continent to be christened by his name was in itself no mean performance, and this was probably his greatest claim to distinction. Some historians take him more seriously than this. Saudi, for one, appears to accept Vespucci very much at his own valuation and states that the honor of having formed the first settlement in Brazil is due to Amerigo Vespucci. The Spaniards claim this distinction for their famous seaman, Vicente Pinzon. Pinzon sailed from Spain in December, 1499. He shaped a more southerly course than any previous navigator in the Spanish service, 
and he appears to have made his landfall in the neighborhood of Pernambuco. He went ashore, it would seem, at a spot he named Cape Consolation, and of this he took possession in the name of the Spanish crown. His voyage, however, appears to have had very little practical result, for almost immediately afterwards he returned to Europe, and no steps seem to have been taken by the Spanish court for the colonization of the land which he had discovered. The Portuguese, for their part, assert that the territories of Brazil were first sighted by their great navigator, Pedro Alvarez Cabral. The discovery was in one sense something of an accident. It was necessary for the seamen who were setting their course for the East Indies to steer well to the west, in order to avoid the zones of calms which prevail in the neighborhood of the African coast. Cabral appears to have steered so boldly into the west that he fell in with the coast of Brazil. This was in 1500. Word of this event was sent to Portugal, and the enterprising little kingdom, at that time at the height of her maritime power, made preparations to colonize the country. The auspices under which the Spaniards and the Portuguese arrived in the New World were curiously different. The Spaniards were frankly in quest of gold, and in many cases ransacked the fertile agricultural lands in search of minerals which were non-existent. The Portuguese, on the other hand, had no reason to suspect the presence of precious metals in their new colony, and it was in the first instance for its vegetable products that the land, so rich in minerals, became famed. It was only natural that the pioneer Portuguese should have been struck with the admirable quality of the valuable Brazilian woods. Shipments of timber were the first to be sent from the new colony to the mother country. It was from this very wood that Portuguese South America took its name, since much of it, being of a brilliant red color, was known in the Portuguese languages, Brissa.